In uh, C.S. Lewis's The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the places that uh, the crew of the Dawn Treader visits is Dark Island. Dark Island is a place where dreams come true, including the nightmares. Uh, dark Island is, is described as, as a place so dark, it's, it's the, like the blackness all around it, the, the blackness of as though as you're inside a tunnel. Uh, the, the very edge of night, the water is described as being murky, ink-like, lifeless. Uh, navigation is well-nigh impossible. You can't determine your, your, your course. You can't determine your speed to try and escape, to try and think you're going to get out of the, the confines of the area. is not going to happen, not by yourself, not without some significant amount of help. It's Dark Island. It is significant that Jesus was born in the dark of night. Jesus came into a world much like our own that was filled with poverty and injustice, racism, disease, emptiness, broken relationships, competing worldviews, philosophies, and faiths, very much like our own. Jesus is born into the dark of night. The darkness then is very much like the darkness now. Hence the, the, the goodness of the news is every bit as good today as it was when he first arrived on the scene. It's why rightly the scriptures refer to him repeatedly as the light of the world. The very light of the world. Uh, if you have a Bible with you, I'd ask you to turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, that is the fourth of the four Gospels that we have, Matthew, then Mark, then Luke, and then John. Uh, we're going to just look for a, a little bit of John chapter 1, the, the prologue, really, of the whole of, uh, actually, something of the introduction to the prologue, you could almost say, the front stoop of the house um, of John's Gospel. John chapter 1, just verses 1 through 5. Uh, John chapter 1. Verses 1 through 5. Uh, follow not long with me as I read. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. And the darkness has not overcome it. Would you pray with me? These are stark images, Lord. These are um, images of, of contrast, and they're, they're boldly stated here. It's describing uh, our existence, our, what we're used to, what we're accustomed to, as being dark. Um, and therein uh, needing light. Uh, we confess that there are even aspects of our own hearts, no matter how long we may have walked with you, however how much we may know of you, uh, however comfortable we may be with what we've been singing and reading and contemplating thus far this morning. Um, there are parts within all of our hearts that resist this, uh, being told that there is darkness. Um, and yet it is somewhat obvious at the same time. 
It's a bit of tension, and we ask that you would help us with that. We, we ask that you would help us to hear your word. Uh, help, help me, help us to, to listen and engage with this passage over these next few minutes in a way that uh, is consistent with our standing uh, on the authority of your word and yet at the same time um, under it. So on it with confidence, knowing it's true, and under it bowing to its authority over our, our lives, your authority over our lives. So we pray this in your name. Amen. So one of my uh, favorite childhood holiday memories is uh, thinking back to the neighborhood that I grew up in and the luminaries that would be set up on, on the sides of, of the streets every Christmas Eve after we'd come home from the Christmas Eve service at Forest Hill Presbyterian Church, and we'd drive on home, and the luminaries would be set up, and if you're not familiar with what those are, those are these little, basically brown paper bags, lunch bags, basically, and you'd fill them up just a little bit with sand down at the bottom, and you've had a candle in there, and nearly every house on every street of, of that neighborhood would have them there right you know, on the edges of the street, and as a little kid, I mean, I would just kind of have this picture in my mind, it was almost like we were a plane coming in for, for landing, just the way you know, when it was done consistently and done well. And on those straight stretches, in fact, I mean, in a lot of cases, cars would just turn off their headlights because there were so many of these and it was so well lit up the path in which you could drive. You know, relative, you don't want to go too fast, but you, know, the, 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 you could just move along because there are these little lights everywhere, these, these lights dispelling the darkness. Um, it's something of that here in John 1 of light dispelling the darkness. Uh, this is the third in our series of four, this little mini-series of, of exploring the deep rootedness of our traditions, the traditions surrounding Christmas. Now, last, uh, two weeks ago, rather, two weeks ago, we looked at the tradition that we just don't observe as much as we should, and that being contemplation and meditation during the season of Advent. Uh, last week, we looked at the tradition that we're all over, and that is uh, music and song. And, and this week, here today, we're going to be looking at light. Uh, you know, what candles lit uh, on wreaths, lights in windows, lights up on the trees, um, lights all over the place, lights in your yard. Um, it it's, has been for, for centuries a, a celebration. The coming of Jesus into this world has been a, a marked by light. And, and well, it should be. Well, it should be, but, but maybe we should ask the question, why? Um, as I said earlier... This is the prologue, or you could say the introduction to the introduction, the prologue, um, where you could say something, maybe it's, it's like a foyer, you're, you're moving into this grand house, this mansion, and the Apostle John is, by describing Jesus and the way that he does, is, is introducing us to many of the themes that you'll see arcing all through the Gospel of John. And uh, one of the themes that he puts right here from the start is Jesus as the Word. And, and that, that Greek word is logos. You, some of you may be aware of that. Uh, for the, the Jewish mind, they would have immediately picked up on that as, as Jesus is um, before all things. For the Greek mind, the, the Gentile mind, and you've got both readers, you know, they're in the first century picking this gospel up, uh, that would have not so much connoted Jesus before all things, but Jesus behind all things. The one holding it all together, sustaining. So think with me. John is describing one who has come, who before anything and everything is, is the agent of the living God in creation 
and the agent of the living God and the sustainer. So the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things, that's who he is describing here for us at the outset, just the beginning of the beginning of John's gospel. And so what we're saying here is that at Christmas, that's who shows up. He takes on flesh. Um, he comes as one of us. He uh, enters space and time. He enters the flow of history and comes into this earth. That's just a stunning thing to consider. That that's who we're talking about here. Um, Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the light. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the light. That's the other theme that, that John uh, brings up here. In fact, what he's helping us to see from the outset is that into the deepest darkness, God has sent forth the greatest light. Into the deepest darkness, God has sent forth the greatest light. Jesus is the light of the world. He is the very light of the, the world. Turning to him, is what John's saying, turning to him is really, as the light of the world, is really the only way they're into face and deal with the darkness. That's basically John's thesis here. He's setting us up for the, the rest of what's coming and even just these verses. Jesus is the very light of the world. Turning to him, the light of the world, is really the only way we have of facing that very real, present, dangerous, existential darkness. Three things I want to look at together um, with you over the next few minutes. And as John is making clear just in these actually two verses of the four, five, excuse me, verses four and five, uh, first, Jesus as the light as life. Secondly, Jesus as the light as shining. And Jesus as the light shining against the darkness. Each one of those is, is subtle nuances to each one, each one different enough to, to justify being a separate point. Let's move through this. Let's take a look at this together. First, Jesus as life. The light as life in and of itself. Uh, verse 4, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. It's important to be clear in our terms. What does John mean here when he says Jesus is the light is life? Well, if we only had the first three verses, you might think that he was speaking again, yet again, reaffirming what he's already said, repeating what he's already said in terms of physical life, of creation, the creation of all things. And while that's certainly true, magnificently and mysteriously and supremely so, Jesus is the agent of God at creation. That's not what he's talking about here in verse 4. He's not talking about the creation of physical life. He's talking now about eternal life, spiritual life, everlasting life, ever-going-on life, ever-deepening life. That's what he's speaking of here when he says that Jesus, in and of himself, is life. Life in the greatest, deepest, highest, grandest sense of all. Jesus as the life. And not just as the possessor of life, but as the grantor of life, as the bestower of life, as the giver of life. And we just keep your thumb there in John 1. But like I said earlier, this is you know kind of the introduction to everything that's coming. This is a, an arc, a theme you see all through John's Gospel. So I just want to show you just a few places where you can see this. John 5, Jesus as the bestower of life. John 5, verse 25. Jesus says these are striking statements that any, anyone would ever make. And he makes them without a wink, without a nudge, without missing a beat. Jesus says, I'm telling you what's true of me. 
John 5, verse 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. Uh, skipping over a few chapters to John 11. This is outside the tomb of Lazarus and a conversation that Jesus is having with one of Lazarus's sisters. Uh, her name was Martha. John 11, verses 25 and 26. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? That's a question that has resonated down through the ages. Pushing on to John 14 in a conversation with the apostle Thomas. Jesus says in verse 6, John 14, verse 6, Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. These are crazy, insane statements unless they're true. And Jesus is saying just that. It's true. As the Puritans used to say, regarding this point of Jesus being the bestower of, of life, this is the life of God in the soul of man. The very life of God in the soul of man. Jesus speaks to this very point as the bestower, the giver, the granter of, of life, and in he himself as being that. Uh, in the imagery that he uses in uh, John 15, I should have kept told you to keep your thumb, keep going there. John 15, verse 5. In a con larger context, you could explore this much more, but I'm just going to read one verse. I am the vine, John 15, 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. So think with me as, you know, very easy image to gr grab on here, uh, you know, in terms of the season. Our fresh-cut Christmas trees, those of you who have them. Okay, they look great. I'm going to grant you that. And they smell great. And it's just something you know, kind of earthy and cool about having the fresh-cut tree. But why do the needles keep dropping? You know why? Because when you went out to that farm and cut your tree fresh, you killed it. I, I mean, I'm not trying to be unkind and rude, but that's just true. You killed that tree in that moment. You cut it off from its sustenance, from its source of life. So however good it may look today, it's dead. That's a corpse of a tree sitting in your room. okay? And its needles are dropping, and it's just going to get browner and darker and drier and crispier as the Advent season goes on because you have cut it off from its source of life. Jesus is saying, I am life. I am life in and of itself. I am the light who brings life. I am the light who is life, who brings life. Understand, however, whatever else you may have been told, whatever else you may be thinking at the moment, um, turning to Jesus, embracing the gospel, taking these things into your, to, to your heart and to heart and living out of them, uh, that does not rob you of life. That brings life. Whatever else you may be thinking, whatever else anybody may have told you, and there are countless examples of that through human history of individuals who over the, you know, whether in a cataclysmic moment or over a slow period of time, embrace this reality of Jesus as the light who brings life, whose lives were up and turned upside down and began to see the glory and wonder and beauty and joy 
of life. Contrast with that with many others, sadly, who have rejected that, turned their backs on that, and do, are not experiencing flourishing, but perishing. Even now, in this temporal life. And I think of just one individual who's uh, part of his biography I was reading, reading just the other day, Charles Darwin, the creator of who we know is the, you know, the father of evolutionary theory. His biographers will tell you that as his life went on, there was increasingly sort of a deadness to the man's life. In his own words, in Darwin's own journal entries, he speaks of the fact that he, in his later years, he lost all interest in the arts, in beauty, in music. He lost any sense, increasingly over the course of his days, of joy and wonder in life. Just the practical outworking of this. He was kind of like a, crisp, a live cut tree, you could say, uh, in that, in a tragic sort of sense. Um, now, I realize that some, you might be thinking, there might be some pushback on this, and you might be thinking, but, but what about those Christians that I know, you know, who really don't have any joy in life? Look where their faith got them. To which I would just gently say, and I want to push back on your pushback, and say, the problem there is not that they took their faith too far. The problem is that they haven't taken it far enough. Jesus is the light that brings life. Jesus is the light that brings life. He is the light of the world to whom we must turn if we're going to face and deal with the darkness. Pressing on. He is the light as life. The second light we'll see he is the light that is shining. The light that is shining, verses 4 and 5. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness. Um, you could, we could read a little further in the John's Gospel, John 8, verse 12. Jesus makes yet another extraordinary claim. Uh, bold, brash, crazy. Put the man in a padded cell, please, if he's not serious and true. John 8, verse 12, again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Well, what does that mean? Well, just think with me what light is. Just as we think of it and how John's readers in their day and what John himself would have understood light to be and how, how it functions. We know that light reveals, right? I mean, you're walking into a dark room at night you want to be able to see, what do you do? You turn on the switch so that light will then reveal what's there. Okay, so light reveals. Light also guides. You think in terms of, of a lighthouse, right? Stormy night and sea and all that stuff, and you want to be safe, you want to be in a short lighthouse. Hello. Or you've got a, a, a cat or a dog, in the, you know, a little more mundane, in the dark of night, and they're lost, and you need to go find it and put them up for the night. So you, what? You get a flashlight to go find them, to guide you. So we know that, that light reveals, we know that light guides, we know that light warms. And, and I don't, don't, please don't deal with, I don't want to talk about the physics of that, okay? I know that light in and of itself is not warm, but just run with me here, okay? We know that light exposes, reveals, we also know that it also guides, we also know that in a sense it warms. You come in from the cold after looking for said cat or dog, cold of night, where do you head if you want to warm up? Not the fridge, but the fireplace. Because light, if you will, warms in that sense. Well, Jesus, if we can move then from these physical images 
to these spiritual realities and what John means by this image, he's saying in every one of those senses, Jesus is light, the light. He reveals. He reveals God. Who is God? If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know what his character is like, Jesus is the preeminent revelation of who God is. God in the flesh. Read the Gospels if you want to know what God is like. Jesus, God in the flesh, he reveals, he also guides, much as the glory cloud did with the Israelites in the, the course of their wilderness wanderings, or as, as the Psalms speak of, as a, as a shepherd does with the sheep, Jesus guides. So he uh, reveals, he guides, he warms, he thaws the cold heart, he softens the hard heart, he warms, he changes, he transforms, he is the light shining. The light shining. A few weeks ago I mentioned uh, the story, a little bit of the biography of Charles Wesley, that uh, great hymn writer. I think it was something like 6,000 hymns that, uh, that he wrote. Just crazy, you know, the, the output of this man. Um, John Wesley, his older brother, is an interesting story as, as well, and that's worth maybe noting here for a second. Um, both of these, these guys came to a point in their lives and in their ministries in which they came to realize that for all of their great labors... For God and in his name, they came to a point where they realized, you know, I'm not even sure that we, you, me, actually really truly know him. Yeah, that can happen. The conversion of the minister. Uh, that changed for John Wesley in, on May 24, 1738. And that then set in motion a whole series of changes that transformed a culture. England. This is, this is John Wesley's uh, journal entry uh, from May 24, 1738. In the evening I went very unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street where one was reading Luther's preface to the Epistle to the Romans. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. That then set in motion what we know today is the Methodist movement. And uh, that was a significant part of a revival that took place within the Church of England. And that was a significant part of a broader cultural revival that we know now today as the Great Awakening. And that was a significant part of a cultural transformation, a sequel of which was William Wilberforce and his vowed fight against the slave trade, and the ab they're in the abolition of the slave trade, and what, what Wilberforce and his cohorts and partners in this, the reformation of manners is how they put it, and by that they didn't mean, you know, the fort goes here and all that. I mean, it was, it was the, the culture, the ethics, the ethos, the morality of the culture, and all, what was going on with all of that? It was the, Jesus as the light shining. That's what's happening there with Charles and John Wesley and the Methodist movement and the Church of England and the Great Awakening and Wilberforce and everything else. That's the light shining, shining, transforming, uh, uh, revealing, guiding, warming. Um, that's, my friends, why we hang the decorations. At least it ought to be. You know, not just because it looks pretty, but because it's a, it's a tangible, physical visceral, visible reminder that Jesus is the light. 
Jesus is the light that has come. Jesus is the light that has been sent. Jesus is the light of the world. That is why we should be lighting things and hanging things and decorating things. And my encouragement to you, my imploring with you, is that not only should you be decorating and hanging and lighting and all those things to beautify whatever it is that you're doing, but as you see that over the course of this season, let every single candle, every single blinking light, every single lawn ornament, however crazy it may look, be a reminder to your heart. Jesus is the light of the world. May that be the like this message, this quote that you just, every time, by God's grace, you see the candles, the lights, the everything. May it be a reminder to your, your heart. He is the light shining. Come to reveal and guide and warm. He is the light of the world. If we're going to face the darkness, deal with the darkness, we need to turn to Him. Lastly, perhaps most pointedly, He is not just the life, He is not just the light shining, but light against. Light against darkness. Verses 4 and 5. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Well, again, what's going on here? We need to think about the imagery. Uh, darkness is certainly a, a universal image, is the, the absence of light. Almost like, much like cold is, in essence, the absence of warmth. Darkness is the, the absence of, of light, and that's an you know, obvious John's readers, they're getting that much better than we do, I think, because of the historical context of the time, pre-electrical age in which, you know, it's dark, and it's dark. It just, it just is. Um, and there's really no way, very little way, to alleviate that in those times. Now, that's a universal image, darkness. We understand that. In the Bible, however, we see particular usages for that. Darkness comes to symbolize, and it serves as an image for for ignorance, for foolishness, for falsehood, for a loss of or lack of truth. But even more, darkness serves as, as a symbol for evil. And the presence and activity as a spiritual force in this, this world. And what John is speaking to is there is a battle that's underway. There is this fight, war, between light and darkness. A struggle. The one trying to overcome the other. There's a long history to that. It's, it's a long fight that's been in play. We can read of the origin of that in Genesis 3. Light, again, knowledge, um, in the deepest sense, Therein setting us on paths of light, paths of flourishing, darkness, uh, implying dis the, the, the lies, the ignorance, the enslavement, the perishing, a sure outcome. Okay, so it may be a long history, but John is very clear on the outcome. And you can almost sense he's an old man, which he was by the time he's writing this gospel. And he's reflecting over how even in his lifetime he has seen this playing itself out. And he knows... He knows what the outcome is and will be. It doesn't matter how, how much the darkness may press in. It cannot snuff out. It cannot put out. It cannot extinguish this light. 
Because who is the light? Jesus. The life itself. Um, so what John is doing here in this, is this prologue here, in this introduction, he's, he's in a sense setting up the reader, warning the reader, preparing the reader for what's coming as they read, over the, what's coming in this, this narrative. That is, that there's an, in the context of this larger war and battle, there's an a, outbreak of hostility on a new front with the coming of Jesus. So there's something new that's come with his coming. Why? It's because light doesn't just reveal and guide and warm, it exposes. And that's not quite as comfortable as revealing and guiding and warming. And you think in terms of Christmas lights and the lights that we see this time of year. And almost all of those lights were fine seeing. But there are some lights you can see that you're not so fine seeing. Those would be the blue ones in your rearview mirror. Right? The police lights. Because at that point, in essence, you could say you've been exposed. Now, Jesus, as the light bringing life, exposes and does that in love. Now, we, of course, think to ourselves, love? Are you kidding me? How does that love? Well, you know, it's oftentimes the case that life-saving labors hurt when you're on the receiving end of it. And that's the case here. It can, it can be painful, but Jesus in his love for us is far more interested in our spiritual condition than our emotional mood. And so, yes, he will reveal in God and warm, but he will also in love for us expose us. He will uh, allow us to be tempted and tried such that we will sometimes be failing. Uh, he will, in his love for us, allow us to go through a time where we are floundering and failing and falling right flat on our face. Why? To expose. Not for his sake. He knows what's there. But that we would know what's there. That we would know the spiritual cancer that's at work within our hearts. The spiritual idolatry, the self-dependence, the self-righteousness that needs to be exposed. Now, he in his love, thank God, does not show us all of it all at once. It would, un it would undo us. We, could we couldn't bear. He only gives us partial glimpses over the period of our lives in love. But why? Just because he wants to beat up on us? So he can feel superior? No. In love, he exposes us to take us where we need to be, to drive us back on our knees before him. Depending upon him, therein undoing the self-dependency, and stripping away our self-righteousness, knowing that our standing and security is only in him. And that is love, that he would expose us. That light that brings life, revealing and guiding and warning, swarming. So I guess you know, the question that begs to be asked at this point is, it's not really a question of if he's going to expose you. When. Okay, so when. How will you respond? How will I respond? How will we respond? 
whether as individuals or as a body or as a family, how will we, not if, how will we respond when exposure comes? Will you turn your back on him? Or will you turn to him as the one who is loving you enough to show you these things about yourself or ourselves? He is the light who is life shining against the darkness. And that darkness is not just out there. It's in here. It's in here. He has come as the light of the world. The only way we can deal with and face that darkness is by turning to him. Okay, thinking about traditions and Christmas lights. Um, it's said, I want to stress that point, it's said that a lot of where we got our ideas of lighting up a Christmas tree comes from Martin Luther. We say a lot comes from Martin Luther, maybe a little bit too much. But um, anyway, it's you know the 500th anniversary of the whole Wittenberg door deal, so there's a lot to read on that this year. But uh, anyway, we'll talk about that later. Um, it's sad, though, that Luther, that it all came about. The, the Luther's out on, on a, a midnight stroll through the, the wintry woods and... Uh, uh, it's a it's a moonlit night, and he's out there on, in the in the German hillsides, and he's seeing the the starlight come through and reflected through these uh, evergreen tree branches, and he's just struck and overcome by the beauty and wonder and awe of that. And it's said that in that moment, it's the reality and presence of God in his life and in the world just was impressed upon his heart even more deeply than ever before. And uh, he, he went up to a rise and is looking down on these woods and looking up at the moon and the, the stars and all, all of that and just had this magnificent sense of peace and wonder and, and tranquility about the whole thing. And so then he, he went home. And you need to understand that already in that time, in, that, in Europe, having a, a tree, an evergreen in your house, was actually already in place as a custom. And so there's already a Christmas tree of sorts there uh, but he wanted to recreate what he had seen outside, and so he took candle holders and began to fasten them to the branches and then puts candles in them and then brought his family and friends in to see, and uh, lo and behold, therein you have the very first lit Christmas tree, and it being Luther as a trendsetter, I guess, um, uh, he, uh, that caught on and swept through Germany, and uh, then, you know, over the course of years, we have electric lights, and that's much better because, you know, you've got problems with candles and dead trees in your house. Um, okay, it's quite possible. We don't know. Uh, like I said earlier, I mean, a second ago, yeah, yeah, we know that in that time, 500 years ago, Luther's time, Europe, right, that part, they did have trees as part of the Christmas celebration. Yes, and we know that even centuries before that, uh, it was already the custom to bring in the evergreens in the home during that time of year to help as a part of the celebration of the Christmas season. So all that said, however, however the lights come about, we know this goes way back. And that's pretty cool. That's really impressive, right? You know, to, to think, wow, I mean, I'm hanging my lights on my trees and, and the garlands and all of that. And I'm not going to tell you the crazy stuff I have we have on our trees. That, that's pretty much, I put them there. Um, but... Uh, that's really amazing, but here's the deal. It's not, that's not amazing enough. That's not interesting or deep enough to really do it and to give it any sustaining power. Why do we do that thing? Why do we do such things? Because, again, well, Christmas, for the Christian, 
we recognize is a whole lot more than just an excuse for a party. It's a whole lot more than just, great, we're out of school. Great, I got some time off. Great, I got some, you know, whatever. It's more than that. This is a celebration of the coming of the one who is the very light of the world. The very light of the world himself. So let's find, let's light the candles, put up the stuff on the tree, stir the fires, let's do it all. But remembering why and who it is that has come as the very light of the world into the darkness of this world with all of its sin and sadness. Let's pray. Jesus, you are the light of the world. And that is, that we, 